the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today's episode is a tragic love story, a visit to the event horizon of loss, and a tribute to the late Anthony Bourdain. The song at the end of the episode is by Mike Ruffino, Bourdain's longtime composer and musical collaborator. Mike's song is inspired not just by the story, but also by an episode that Bourdain shot in Sri Lanka in 2017 and uses sounds and ideas and even voices recorded during that shoot. But first, the story. My name is Lori Woolever, and I am an author. I most recently wrote a book called Bourdain, The Definitive Oral Biography. And I say I wrote it, but I really it was done with the help of close to 100 people whom I interviewed about the late, great Anthony Bourdain. I first met Tony Bourdain in 2002 uh, when I was introduced to him by Mario Batali, who was then my boss. Tony was looking for someone to help him with his first cookbook, uh, Anthony Bourdain's Layal Cookbook. And eventually we co-authored a cookbook together called Appetites, and that was published in 2016. So I, my job with Tony was a mixture of sort of the mundane and the sublime. Tony was someone who would joke all the time about really, really dark things. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many suicide jokes he made. It was a, it was a shtick. It was a, it just was something that he almost sort of disregarded as room tone because it was such a common trope for him to joke about suicide. You know, among other things, you know, violent and inflicting violence upon others. You know, unspeakable horrors of, of every kind. He went to some some really beautiful places and in the world and some places that, despite their beauty, were very, very sad and, and the people who, who were there had difficult lives. And I think there's some guilt that's associated with visiting places uh, from a place of privilege, coming in with your with your you know hundreds of thousands of dollars of camera equipment and and um, you know highly educated, highly talented people who who live well in the US and capturing a story and moving on, how could you not feel some sense of conflict about that? And, and I, I do think, and from talking to his colleagues, I think that that wore on him. What made Tony so extraordinary that he could reflect and access the darkness that resonated with a lot of people. Plenty of people feel despair, feel violent feelings toward themselves or others, feel anxious and depressed at times, but that he could also be so funny and see the delight and the absurdity in small things and, and be such an enthusiast of you know, anything from a really exquisite five-course, hugely expensive meal in Paris to a street cart hot dog and have the same kind of genuine enthusiasm and excitement for life. He was, he was truly an extraordinary person. 
the, the story really isn't about Tony, and I, and that was very deliberate. You know, I don't I don't feel entitled to tell stories about Tony. Tony makes an appearance in the story, and I, you know, I'm I am doing work for Tony, but. I wanted to make it more about my experience going along on this, you know, for this ride of, of watching the show get made and, and being there uh, just to be supportive and trying to stay out of the way. You know, I had never experienced uh, a loss like the loss of Tony, and, and I'm still, you know, it's something that I continue to process every day, and I think that's true of a lot of the people that were around him working and, and being his friend. So there's, there's a lot of transition, you know, there's a lot of trying to understand who we are and, and what, where we're going without our North Star. Everything felt very, very tenuous. And I was had been very nervous about this trip because it was my first uh, time traveling without uh, the promise of alcohol. And, uh, and I didn't know really what that was like as an adult uh, to travel without alcohol. Uh, it's, it was such a huge part of, of my travel up until that point. So since that time, I mean, that was five, almost five years ago, you know, I, I, have, I have stayed sober and I have sort of gotten a deeper a real sobriety. I mean, I was still, I was still at that point smoking weed like it was my job. And my behavior was such that, you know, I was not behaving like a sober person. I'll just leave it at that. And so it took another year and a half for me to really, truly get with the program, so to speak. And so I always say that I didn't really, really get sober until uh, October 2018. This is Lori Woolever with a story that she wrote for Songwriter. I've been traveling with Tony Bourdain and his TV crew in Sri Lanka for the past 10 days. It's been not quite 90 days since my last drink. There was a tough moment last week. First night in the country, at the hotel in Colombo, jet-lagged, colleagues all around me drinking these huge wet gin and tonics. The scent carried straight at me by the heavy, humid ocean air, just killing me. I love gin for the way it just punches you in the face. I mean, loved, not love. No more punching. Not anymore. I drank my Diet Coke straight from the glass bottle, no ice, and went to bed. Tonight, in the northern city of Jaffna, I had another tough moment, or really a series of tough moments. It started at the Madai Festival. It's a day in which devout Hindus balance their spiritual ledger through fasting and dramatic acts of physical suffering called kavadis, or the burden debts. Every religion has some form of this, right? But this isn't like giving up beer or chocolate for the 40 days and nights of Lent. This isn't one day of fasting for atonement on Yom Kippur, followed by a sundown bagel platter. In preparation for the Madai festival, people here fast for a month, and then that's just a baseline for the real suffering. For young women, the burden debts involve walking the equivalent of a 5K, wearing shoes with nails hammered into the insoles, business side up 
or carrying metal pots of something flammable which is actively on fire. Young men, meanwhile, have heavy-gauge hooks driven through the flesh of their backs, which are then attached to ropes, which are then yanked around by other men or suspended from cranes, which are covered with fruits and flower garlands and bounce slowly along the rutted parade route while crowds of devotees play drums and chant and dance in clear religious ecstasy. Children dressed in their best clothes bunch up in gleeful packs, chasing each other, eating carnival food. Do they know that it'll be their turn soon? The TV crew had been at the temple grounds all day in the hot sun, trying to respectfully, artfully capture preparations for this spectacle of devotion and pain, a spectacle that would intensify as the sun set and would last all night. Our local fixer, the inscrutable Mr. L, had assured the director that there would be plenty of food on hand to sustain the crew, but some vital detail of timing or quantity or maybe a mutually agreed-upon definition of the word food had gotten fucked up somewhere, and there hadn't been much more than a few handfuls of cooked rice and some candy passed around among the camera and sound operators, director, producer, assistants, and the network photographer Sober David, a relentless flirt who the previous day had regaled me with stories about weird rough sex and southern death cults. Hunger probably gave the crew more empathy for the fasting devotees, but it did little to improve morale, which had already been battered by a round of the flaming shits and vomits that started back in Colombo. Was it the ice and the gin and tonics? The spicy crabs from the beach vendors? Did someone eat a spear of melon at the hotel breakfast buffet? Unclear, unclear, but everyone was down a few pounds, and the spaces between their teeth had a pink sheen left over from crunching dry Pepto tablets after they ran through all the emodium. I arrived at the temple grounds with Tony in the late afternoon as the parade of suffering began in earnest. He got out of the SUV, did his 30-minute interview with the local coconut farmer, and was then filmed observing enough of the procession to satisfy the director. As usual, I stayed out of the way, lest a camera pick up a shot of me in my blonde highlights and Warby Parker glasses. I could not and did not blend in. Once the sound guy disengaged Tony from his mic pack, the director hustled us back into the car. The parade of hanging men and drummers and cranes and dancers eddied around the SUV, which the driver inched like an ancient tortoise through the crowd, giving us the chance to witness everything, the ecstasy, the pain, the delirium, close up through tinted glass. I sat riveted for several minutes, feeling grateful for the opportunity, the anonymity, and the climate control. I looked over at Tony. He was slightly hunched over with a portable Wi-Fi transponder in his lap and his face buried deep in his phone. He might as well have been stuck in JFK-bound traffic on the Grand Central Parkway. It made me sad the way in which he was indifferent to the intensity of the display just outside the car. 
He'd been doing this, traveling for television, for a long time. He looked up. I'm trying to figure out if there's a KFC in Jaffna. I was thinking we'd get some chicken, a bottle of good scotch, hang out on the hotel roof, he said. And I knew that this meant, manifest this for me, please. I'd bring in the food, the beverages, and make sure that a critical mass of exhausted and queasy crew members showed up on the roof so that it would feel like, if not a party, then at least like fun. I had very little to do on these shoots, so I was pleased and somewhat relieved that he'd given me a concrete set of tasks to execute. He tilted his phone toward me. There's a KFC around the corner from our hotel. I used my own phone to get the chicken coordinates and found, on the map, a liquor store just a few blocks away. I then sent gently persuasive texts to each crew member, imploring them to make an appearance on the hotel roof, despite any exhaustion or desire to speak to loved ones back home or prepare for the next day's shoot or yank it to porn. Once back at the hotel, I put on my backpack and headed out on foot to the liquor store. The street smelled more than a little of sewage in some state of decay and was half dark, streetlights being rare, many shops closing or having just closed. I passed an emaciated cow, alive, doing that bovine slow blink, hunkered down among dozens of parked motorbikes. I held my breath while skittering through the damp, unlit underpass that led to the store. I should have checked whether the hotel bar could have just sold us a bottle of whiskey. The liquor store was a walk-up joint with money and booze exchanged through a window. I asked the young man in charge for a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label, which I could see on a shelf behind him. I handed him my Amex, which he swiped through his machine. After a disheartening series of noises, he looked up at me and said, not unkindly, declined. I'd say that I started to sweat, but I'd been alternately drenched and clammy all day. I handed him a MasterCard, which elicited a shorter and altogether more promising series of noises from the machine. Okay, said the man, ripping off and handing me a paper receipt and a pen with which to sign it. Where you are from, he said. New York City, I said. I love it. I visit New York. I love it, he said. Thank you, I said. I put the bottle into my backpack, zipped it up, and skittered back toward the KFC, which was on the second floor of a shopping mall. Most of the retail shops on the first floor were shuttered, but I could see the illuminated red signage smell the oil, and hear the muted buzz of fast food commerce on the level above. I boarded the elevator and was followed by a young man who looked to be in his early twenties. He was taller than me, slender, wearing linen pants and a pink dress shirt, untucked. As the door slid closed, he said, Where you are from? The U.S., I said, keeping my voice friendly, but my eyes downcast. Can I join you? My stomach lurched. What did he mean? I'm sorry, I'm not staying here to eat, I said, as the door slid open to reveal the KFC counter and about a dozen tables and chairs arranged nearby, many of them occupied by families with children and couples, reaching into their buckets of chicken, drinking sodas through straws. 
I joined a short line to order chicken, and the young man joined a different line. While waiting, I noticed a layer of dead flies inside the base of the illuminated KFC sign. When it was my turn, I ordered a 12-piece bucket and an 8-piece bucket and took the sweaty straps of my backpack off my sweaty shoulders to extract my wallet. When I opened it, I realized with a flush of sickening dread that I'd run off from the liquor store without my MasterCard. Fuck. I paid for the chicken in cash. Your chicken is ready in 20 minutes, said the cashier. Thank you. I'll come back, I said. I took my receipt and hustled into the elevator, out the door and back onto the fetid street, and there was the young man in the pink shirt from the elevator. I turned in the direction of the liquor store, and he started walking next to me. You are looking very beautiful, he said, and I laughed without thinking. I'll go with you to your hotel. I'm married, I said, walking faster, holding up my left hand, waving my ring. It doesn't matter, he said. I go with you to your hotel. I have very big penis. I'll put it in your mouth. I laughed again at the absurdity, at my own fear. A few nights ago, a Tamil native told me that any woman walking alone at night is assumed to be a prostitute, whether or not she had dirty hair and a messy bun or is dressed like a post-menopausal kindergarten teacher or tells you that she's married. I crossed the street, and he crossed with me. Go away. Leave me alone, I said. He kept walking with me. I knew I was very close to the liquor store, but there was still the overpass, and I didn't want to lead him there. I crossed over again to a wide median that split the street, where four tuk-tuk drivers were gathered outside their parked vehicles. I'm being followed, I said to the men, pointing to the guy in the pink shirt, who had stopped walking and stood, smiling at me from across the street. I felt like a fucking idiot for being out alone at night, for leaving my card at the store. Was it rude to presume that the drivers would even understand me? I had no idea. Will you please take me to the liquor store? I pulled out my phone, opened the map, held it out to the group who exchanged blank looks with me, with each other. I pointed to the store on the map. My roaming data bill was going to be so fucking expensive. The driver closest to me squinted at the screen and then at my face. It's 100 meters only, he said. It's not a ride. Please, I said, I will pay double. Liquor store and Jetwing Hotel. There was an exchange of a few words of Tamil among them. Did they think I was a sex worker or just a fucking idiot? The same driver who had initially refused said, Okay. I climbed in, took off my backpack, and enjoyed about 30 seconds of relative cooling breeze while he motored us the short distance to the store. When I looked back, the guy in the pink shirt was still standing there, having not yet given up on the chance to introduce me, or really just my mouth, to his allegedly big dick. I'll be right back, I said to the driver, and hopped out of the idling tuk-tuk and up to the window, where the clerk smiled broadly and handed my credit card through the window before I could even ask for it. New York City, you lost your card, he said. 
Yes, thank you, I said. We smiled and nodded at each other in relieved silence, neither of us having any further observations to share. Okay, thank you, thank you, I said. And as I turned away, I heard the tuk-tuk driver drop the motor into gear. He sped off and away toward that dark overpass with my backpack containing my phone, passport, wallet, hotel key, the whiskey, all the notes for the story I'd been reporting in Colombo, and my eyeglasses bouncing in the back seat. I had left my bag on the seat so that the driver would trust me to come back and pay him. This was New York City taxi logic, useless in Jaffna. I yelled, hey, what the fuck? Which had no effect. He kept going, under the overpass and out of sight. A couple of hot tears leaked out around my crackly disposable contact lenses. My chicken would be ready soon, but the receipt was also in the backpack. The liquor store guy hustled out from behind the service window and onto the street. He mounted a small motorbike parked on the curb. Go with me, he said, motioning to the sliver of seat behind him. We'll find the tuk-tuk. This was fucking ridiculous. I thought I was going to puke. What might this guy do to me? How many men would I need to assess and defeat just to buy some goddamn chicken and whiskey in northern Sri Lanka? Fuck it. I threw my leg over the back of the bike and sat down gingerly, awkwardly, feeling around for handles so that I wouldn't have to touch the driver to keep my balance. Just as the tuk-tuk guy came inexplicably, beautifully, roaring back with my bag still on the seat. I got off the bike. Thank you, I said to the liquor store guy. I was still crying a little as I climbed into the back of the tuk-tuk. Please take me to the Jetwing Hotel, I said, slowly, excruciatingly polite. I wanted to ask the driver why and what the fuck, but kept it to myself. I clutched my stupid backpack as we approached the hotel and then kept going past it. Was this it? The sweet release of death, finally? But no, the tuk-tuk slowed and the driver made a huge arcing U-turn in the middle of the empty road, then gracefully turned left into the hotel parking lot and up to the front door. 200 rupees, he said, turned halfway in his seat, smiling placidly. I opened my wallet and fished out 300, handing him the bills with two hands, like I'd been taught was polite in Japan, not knowing if the gesture translated to any place else. I didn't know whether he was under or overcharging me, whether he took pity on me or wanted to fuck with me, whether he'd intended to steal my things or just had a habit of making excessively wide U-turns. What was the safest turning radius on a tuk-tuk? Had either one of us understood a single thing that the other wanted or needed? He counted the bills, looked up at me again. You want to hire tuk-tuk tomorrow, he asked. Maybe, I said. If I need you, I'll come find you. I got out and unzipped the top of my backpack, put my hand around the top of the whiskey bottle. It would feel great, I thought, to take a long, fiery slug right off the top and then start counting days again from zero tomorrow morning or maybe once I was back in New York or once I felt like it, if I felt like it. The glass doors slid open as I approached the hotel. 
Sober David was on his way out, he said, to buy a Mountain Dew and a candy bar. I told him my story, laughing now. And now for the song written in response. Mike Ruffino composed all the music on No Reservations, as well as Parts Unknown, and was a longtime friend of Anthony Bourdain's. Before beginning his work with Bourdain, Mike was in the Unband and published a memoir of his touring diaries, including his time opening for Motorhead. Speaking with him, one gets the sense that alcohol and other substances have perhaps played a role in his life as well. In any case, he has lived a full life, and I was excited to ask about an alligator attack that I had read about online. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the storied alligator attack. Well, yeah, many of those days are uh, a little blurry. I'm, I really cannot elaborate on the alligator attack. There was a... <laughs> it was, I thought someone had completely made it up. I still suspect that that's the case, but... Uh, I have since been sent uh, some uh, intel <laughs> that maybe I did actually need to run from an alligator uh, during some, some really ill-advised activities. I followed up, asking about the scars that were supposedly on his chest and shoulders from the alligator's teeth. I, I'm not sure if it's a false memory now, but I do remember uh, crashing a golf course, and I think uh, it was just one of looking for a place for, with some space to, uh, you know, I don't know, hallucinate or something. Uh, and there may have been an incident. But, I, but again, I, can, I cannot confirm. I can confirm that I was not attacked. I have no alligator-related injuries and never have, as far as I know. As far as he knows. Happily, Mike's memory about how he came to write the song for this week's episode is much clearer. I had a piece of music left over from uh, the Sri Lankan episode, Parts Unknown, and I used parts of that to craft the song, which was based on sounds that were collected from that episode, beginning with the train rhythm and including the chants at the Kavadi Festival and various rhythms played by Sri Lankan musicians. My name's Mike Rufino. I'm a musician, composer, well, mostly for uh, Anthony Bourdain for many, many years. Yeah, well, I mean, I think like a lot of people at the moment, I'm, uh, I feel a little bit in between a lot of things. Uh, micro pivoting <laughs> going on, you know, 15 plus years of, of never having to do anything I didn't want to. That's, that's a very, very rare uh, circumstance. It was uh, during one of a series of stays at the Chateau Marmont in Los Angeles, uh, which are all incredibly hazy for reasons we don't need to get into. Uh, one of these hazy times, Tony showed up and we just hit it off and he asked me to start doing some music for this show that I didn't even know he had. I mean, we'd been hanging out for a couple of weeks before he even mentioned. I had no idea who he was. There was no just didn't come up. 
So he asked me to start doing some music, and uh, I did, not knowing what I was doing at all. Although I didn't know what I was doing, he pointed out uh, very specifically that he, he didn't either. I think he was maybe selling himself a little short there, but, but it was early days, that's for sure. The thing that I, I suppose stuck with me most was her, the, her recounting the ride with Tony in the, in the town car which is a ride I've taken many times. And his sense of detachment, his ability to remain detached, it is very hard to imagine, knowing what was going on outside the car, that anybody wouldn't be completely absorbed in that, rather than a phone. So to a certain degree, you have to be able to detach and, and compartmentalize, and, and if, if you were giving every bit of yourself to your environment and becoming invested in everything around you, you can't do your job. There's just no way. So some of that is, is just him being a professional. And some of that is his cynicism and his, uh, I think, exhaustion. The, the other part there is that we, because he was isolated to a degree, as much as he was, he was uh, a boots on the ground sort of guy, there was a certain amount that uh, he, he wasn't able to recognize around him entirely. Uh, and it, it goes for me too, where he was in the world and what he meant to a lot of people. I think there was, a, there was, a, there was an obvious shift when he could no longer easily go to a restaurant, simply sit down and eat something. We'll go to a bar and have a drink. And in the later years, that got incredibly difficult. I don't know to, to what degree he understood how, how much of an impact he had on people. When you're traveling in a, in a foreign country, especially one that has a musical history like Sri Lanka does, the sounds that you get used to hearing every day, you know, various clacks and bangs, and whether it's uh, street vendors or the noises of a market or, you know, the tuk-tuk or some other kind of mode of transportation, all of these city sounds form a, a, a real a sense impression of the place that, that I would try to replicate whenever I could. The director, Tom, who was always really, really good about collecting sounds, he actually had a, uh, a session with uh, a number of musicians in Sri Lanka in a theater and collected individual sounds of individual drums and, and other instruments. So, uh, so I would have those to use. And I did use a lot of those in, in the show. And the, the song here, the rhythm is taken from the train, the wheels of the train uh, riding from Colombo to Jaffna. And the, the drum beat is a, is a, a sort of warped version of uh, whatever the Rabana player was playing in that theater. Almost all of the percussion, apart from what I played myself, is, was either, either played by musicians in, in Sri Lanka or assembled from samples that, that I got from that 
shoot. The, the voices in the bridge are uh, chants from, it's two, two separate chants from uh, the Kavadi Trek, you know, this, this festival of uh, pain and hardship. This is where the Kavadi comes from. It's why they have these giant things on their back. And the idea is that the, the pain will, among other things, ease their, their way through, through life. It really is a, a pretty brutal looking procedure. These guys getting, you know, things that you, you, would, you would hook a swordfish on through their backs hoisted onto a, uh, a platform where ropes were attached to the hooks. He's hanging below the platform, and then there's another devotee on top of the platform, which is flexible, and the guy on top is bouncing, so the man on the hooks is bouncing in, in, in kind. And, uh, and waving his arms with these herbs in it with, with a completely beatific expression on his face, somewhere between pain and ecstasy. So my idea was to have the music for this, this festival um, be something that was more about, more from the perspective of the devotees, not what it looks like to a Westerner observing what appears to be just rampant mutilation all over the place. It was more for me about uh, trying to imagine why and how and what it feels like for them after a month of fasting and all, and all of this and being uh, in, a, in a rain of flowers at the culmination of this, this religious uh, ritual. When it comes to uh, any song, really, I don't tend to do a lot of thinking about it. And in fact, the, that song, those, those lyrics were written in, that was my first impression, so free writing basically in about five minutes after reading Laurie's story. I knew the story about the, the, the festival itself from working on the show. And the idea that what, what Laurie had to do, working for Tony, was a lot, you know, it was not, that's, I can't imagine that was a particularly easy job. And you're moving some mountains, much like that, that story. The task was to move some mountains and it became, uh, in this case, impossible because the, because this Lord Morrigan standing on top of the mountain as a child makes the mountain impossible to move. The idea of the, of the festival, the purpose of the festival, being one of bearing burdens seemed to me to relate to to anybody's burden. And in this case, there's certainly a, uh, a painful task here and there. And there's also the, the element of, of serving a, a divinity. Laurie riding around in an in a air-conditioned vehicle with Tony. There's also, you're also serving a kind of a greater purpose and at the same time a uh, another mischievous if not quite deity certainly a person of influence and in in, uh, in this case invisible by which I mean dead <laughs> 
This is Mike Ruffino with his song, Devotion Cycle Part 2, Climate Control. That was Devotion Cycle Part 2, Climate Control, by Mike Ruffino. The next episode features two pieces of flash fiction by author Tom Franklin and a brand new song written in response by songwriter Ben Glover. 
Songwriter is 100% independently produced by Hook and Crook. If you want to support the artists and me, the producer, get yourself a premium subscription at Apple Podcasts or simply go to songwriterpodcast.com forward slash donate. Five-star ratings and reviews and kind words on social media or out there in the real world are always a help, too. Speaking of kind help, I wanted to say a special thank you to Apple Podcasts, who are currently featuring Songwriter in their Indie Creators module. I am constantly amazed at how accessible, thorough, and patient the entire team has been. It is deeply appreciated, and it really helps. You can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Thanks also, as always, to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.